Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. To preach the word to us, Brandon is a uh, recent graduate of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, he's known by many of us here because he used to be our music director for, for many years. Um, he is uh, aspiring to pastoral ministry, and he and his family are going to be moving back to the Muncie area in the fall. And so we're delighted to have them back and look forward to hearing the word. Brandon, thanks. Thank you. Yep, you heard it here first. We're coming back to Muncie. We're really, really pleased. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Yeah, all right. We're as pumped as you guys are. That's great. <laughs> Uh, I want to share a text with you this morning that's really been on my heart. I feel like over the past couple of years, I've had to live kind of in this sort of posture, right, a little bit defensive. Um, and as I do that and I look at the scriptures, I think a better posture is one like this, looking up at Jesus, right? Um, and so one text that I've found that uh, I think accurately describes that posture is 1 Peter 3. So would you please stand, and if you want to turn in your Bibles... 2 1 Peter 3, you're welcome to. I would actually encourage it because I'll be kind of alluding to it throughout the sermon today. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, you can see it also on the screen. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, let us see your face this morning. Let us look to you and let us hear from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, let's see if I can figure this out. Uh, In a poll done by Pew Research, 23% of Americans surveyed say they have been thinking a lot, is the language of the survey, about the source of suffering and why bad things happen to people. And this doesn't change much whether the respondent was a Christian or a non-Christian. And if I can be honest, I'm just wondering what the other 77% are thinking about to keep their minds off the suffering. We're living in a really strange time. Where even those who are are materially prospering, they're still having a difficult time navigating the culture. Whether mentally or emotionally or even just from the news, how do you avoid suffering right now and thinking about it? Well, in the same Pew survey, 80% of the people said that uh, suffering primarily comes through other people. And now, obviously, uh, you know, suffering does come in other ways. There are natural disasters or diseases, some of the things that we've just been praying about. Um, But uh, judging by these poll results, it seems inevitable that some sort of suffering is going to come through the mouths or through the actions of other people. Does it not seem to you like humans have a knack for causing each other to suffer? We're pretty good at it. 
And yet if we look around, I, I've never met anybody who's intentionally introducing this suffering, right? Who have you ever asked, like, hey, what do you do for a living or what are your hobbies? And they're like, I really love to cause others to suffer. Nobody says that. But even still, the world does seem pretty hostile. And this causes us to ask an important question. Where does hostility come from? Because, wow, it would be really excellent if all of us in this room and all Christians could say that we are the good guys and we've never caused any suffering. Never, ever, ever has anybody who bears the name of Christ ever caused suffering for anybody else, right? But of course that's ridiculous. Of course we cause others to suffer. That's ridiculous in terms of history, our personal experience, and in just the theology of our own sinfulness and our flesh. So then I turn towards myself and I hold up a mirror and I say, what if I'm the hostile one? What if hostility lives within me? What if all human hearts are capable of hostility? And what if Christians, just like everybody else, are at war within themselves between kindness and wickedness? All humans, including you and me, we, we love to build a dividing line between us and them. Then whenever we see any affront... We claim that we've suffered some sort of injustice from the other side, and then we use that to justify making the other side look bad or discredit them or treat them as second class. As long as they cause us suffering, we can make them suffer too, right? It's justifiable. And around and around we go. And we just recreate that same suffering that was done to us. Isn't that the way that we work? This is what a hostile world looks like. And we, too, take part in both the suffering and the hostility. But if hostility is this common and if the cycle seems doomed to repeat itself and sin affects all people, then, then what difference does knowing Jesus make? What is the Christian to do? Is there any difference for us? I want to actually make the, the claim that this is Peter's main concern. He wants to showcase that Christ makes all the difference. All the difference, but not in the ways that you'd expect. Peter's audience was facing tremendous hostility in the early church, and they needed instruction on how to respond to hostility. So specifically here in chapter 3, we see some pretty clear guidance, some commands or instruction for the Christian who wants to live in light of the gospel amidst a hostile world. And it's a challenging way to live. The instructions Peter proposes, they, they are not likely to win you arguments. They aren't going to make anybody else nicer to you. And you can actually do the right thing, what Peter says, but do it from a dead and self-justifying heart. And that's the wrong path as well. So let's look what he actually says. We're going to look at Peter's instruction in 1 Peter 3. By giving three case studies, we're going to look at three examples from a hostile world and then seeing the gospel living response from the text. And the main point of what we're going to see is this. Gospel living in a hostile world is living just like Jesus lived for us. Let me say that again. Gospel living in a hostile world is living just like Jesus lived for us. Okay, so let's dive in. If you hear that today, 
then I've done my job. <laughs> uh, case study number one. This is example number one, and I'm trying to make these at least pertain to your lives a little bit. You'll hopefully see some relevant truths here, uh, but it's not a, a real-world scenario, okay? So, case study number one. Uh, there's a new political candidate running for governor who's a Christian, or at least evidently goes to an evangelical church in Indianapolis. And you'd normally be pretty excited to vote for a Christian, except that this candidate has certain views on race that you think aren't scriptural. You're torn because you have some good friends in your congregation who are supporting this candidate. It's making you second-guess your friendships and other relationships as well. Well, you have some different options, right? Option one, forget about it. It's not that big of a deal. Nothing ever gets done through politics anyways, so you don't need to concern yourself with it. It's not worth talking about. Option number two, keep your eye out. Right? Look at your friends and just you know, have a little bit of suspicion towards them. Make sure your friends aren't on the path to denying their faith or scriptural truth. Maybe post some things online to make sure that they know what the Christian view really is and then try to find another candidate to vote for. Or, recognize that you have unity of mind with other Christians, not because of what you think about racial theories, but because we share the mind of Christ, who united us all by dying a costly death. And he's sanctifying your friends, he's sanctifying politicians, and he's sanctifying you. Have sympathy for those who support this, this politician because they have some adequate reasons for thinking what they think also. But have a tender heart and a humble mind that's open to changing, open to challenge because nobody has 100% ownership of the truth. And there could be a blind spot and you could learn something from, from your friends as well. That's the gospel living option, isn't it? That's what First Peter says. And some, some consequences of this are that God doesn't need your influence over the world. I think he has enough of that on his own, doesn't he? God doesn't need your influence over the world. He doesn't need you to be politically correct or certainly not politically wrong, right? You simultaneously have, have no command to win political battles. But at the same time, you're not allowed to give in to cynicism, cynicism or have a checked-out heart. It likely means you need to engage with some underlying issues, but being humble and gracious as you do it. Christ died. Christ died to make us unified in mind. Not unified in politics, right? But unified in submitting our minds. All of us submitting our minds to the Lord of all. Peter would probably say to this uh, case study number one, you don't have anything to prove because Jesus proved his tender heart for you already. And gospel living is living just like Jesus lived for us. So show brotherly love even for those you disagree with. And a bonus point. I said I'd give uh, uh, bonus points out today to the band. Uh, bonus point is that this does not mean you will get what you hope for politically. And it doesn't mean that you should vote for a Christian every time either. Those matters are really complex. We're not going to even talk about them today. But I would say from this text that, 
that politics are actually subordinated and secondary to your brotherly affection with all other believers. Case study number two. On the internet, you see a friend who posted a link to a Gospel Coalition article that gives gratitude to God for overturning the Roe versus Wade decision. You repost, uh, you repost it, period. In the comments, somebody who you know who works at Ball State comments and says something like, if only you Christians could care for the single mothers, then you'd have the right to talk. What are our options? Option one, get offended and get even. This is an act of religious hatred. It's time to set the record straight. Just wait and see how fast I can type. Option two, avoid conflict. And with the highest of tact, pursue a mediated approach. Try to see the other's viewpoint. After all, conflicts are bad, and we want to avoid them whenever possible because that's the good Christian thing to do. Option three, unsure of exactly how to respond, you pray. You seek God. You seek the face and the wisdom of God because you recognize that this person is probably not posting out of hatred for you, but out of a place of pain or lived experience. Peter says, do not pay back reviling for reviling. So if the world utters something against you, anyone in the world, do not curse this person, but offer a blessing, it says in the text. Why? Because for starters, the world, as we call it, is actually composed of, of billions of people made in the image of God. All of us are made in the image of God. Real people with real stories. But even deeper, every single person is an image bearer, and in everything that they say, everything that they say, even words like that, they're reacting out of that image of God nature. They may be reacting against God, but they do have real needs, and they've probably gone unmet. So they're reacting against God, but they're reacting as the image of God because they can't avoid it. They have spiritual needs as well. So that means that they have dignity because of who created them. That means that their emotions deserve a real response, and that means that their hearts deserve real healing. And this is why we should not repay evil or their reviling with more reviling. Right? In fact, to respond with blessing may actually provide the healing that this person needs and could be the start of a journey for this person toward God rather than away from him. But how do we know that that's such a good idea? Well, because Jesus did not curse his enemies, did he? He blessed his enemies. He took all of us, everyone who's a Christian in this room, and he paid the cost of his own blood to make us his family. I praise God that, that he didn't repay my reviling with the judgment that it deserved. But he gave me grace, amen? So another bonus point. If you ever think to yourself, I'm doing it because it's the Christian thing to do. This was option two, right? I have a word for you. Uh, you need to go a little bit deeper in your heart. You might be right that that is the Christian thing to do, but if you're doing it because Christians are just supposed to do it, 
then that isn't from the Lord. You might have set up a type of law or a checklist in your faith for yourself. Instead, what you're supposed to do is live out of the power of Jesus and live out of the love of Jesus. Gospel living starts from a posture like this, of belonging to him. But anything that you do because it's the Christian thing to do might be from a heart of duty, a legalistic heart rather than from the love of God empowered by Jesus. Always, always, always look to Jesus. Case study number three. You notice that several of your neighbors have put up yard signs that clearly state false doctrine. None of them are Christians, and the statements on the sign contradict the power and the truth of God. The thing that makes you most upset is that there are many kids in the neighborhood who see and might incorporate this view of the world. So options, we're going to do this one last time. Option one, under the cover of darkness, go and remove the signs, or deface them, or do something to them, right? You don't want them being seen. You know that the gains of removing those signs outweigh the potential costs. Option two, organize with the handful of Christians in your neighborhood that you know, and put out some other kind of sign to balance out their marketing, right? You want to make sure all the good gets mixed in there, too. Or option three, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, as First Peter says. Live at peace with your neighbors and invite them to a Labor Day barbecue. No need to talk to them about Jesus on that first hangout, but build relationships so that they can see and hear about your love for Jesus. Seek their prosperity in the neighborhood by feeding their cat while they're out of town. Show them that you care about their best interests because you do. You actually do. The mentality that says, if you aren't for us, then you're against us, is, it's absolutely wrong. In fact, to fight back against these people in any way, it's, it, with accusation or oppression or, or defacing their property or anything like that, it's not from Christ. Every human has once been an enemy of God. But the genuine offer of grace is for everyone as well. Everyone is a recipient, should be a recipient of God's grace. How much falsehood did Jesus endure during his, during his time? Even though, yes, he did contradict and even cast out some who were against him, his, his life's mission was one of making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. He was establishing a kingdom so that his people could endure suffering in any earthly nation at any time, endure any amount of suffering anywhere, no matter how many people were hostile towards God or hostile towards other humans there. Jesus could have, he could have come and just set the record straight, right? And overthrown his accusers and brought down fire from heaven upon all who stood against him in the whole world. But he sought peace and he pursued it. He wouldn't even speak a word of defense for himself when he was being mocked in his own trial. So if this is the Jesus that empowers our gospel living, if that's our power and that's our Savior, then, then as we grow in Christ-likeness, we should be more content and more at peace in a hostile world. Bonus. That doesn't mean making peace with the world. In fact, being upset at the messaging on the sign, for instance, is still a reasonable response for the Christian to have. But 
while we don't make peace with the world, our souls live from, out of a sense of peace. We don't need to be spineless or passive, but everything that we do needs to start from a sense that we're going to be okay. Our lives are hidden with Christ. And because He is sovereign, and God will do all things according to His perfect will. It's a good thing to live in the gospel. Even though our gospel living, it's not going to cause others to think the way that we think. It's not going to mean anybody will appreciate this hard work of peacemaking. It's our way of living in union with a peacemaking Savior, Jesus. And it's a good thing to live in union with the Creator and Savior of the world. It's a good thing. And verse 12 is a good way of showing us why. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. The Lord does look favorably upon you. That is the good news of the gospel. He looks favorably on his righteous children because he first looked at his righteous son. And he was pleased with him and with his work. And the son's life was restored to him in his resurrection. And when you are in Christ, when you are in Christ and found in him, God is pleased with you as well and raises you to new life with him, to gospel life in Jesus. Jesus assumed the curse of sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we can live this way. And Christ died. He died on the cross for us. But his righteousness proved worthy so that he would triumph over death. In other words, Jesus' righteousness defeats death. It works. It worked. His righteousness elevated him over death. This is the proof of Christ's righteousness. This is his resurrection. He came alive again because his righteousness was fully confirmed. It was perfect. And if the wages of sin are death, then death doesn't even know how to handle the righteousness of God. Death can't exist where the righteousness of God is present. Right? Death can't exist where the righteousness of God is present. And that goes for us too who live in Christ's righteousness. Gospel living seeks to live in righteousness because our Savior saved us from death by His righteousness. Now some of you have been hearing a lot of commands, right? Uh, the, the text of confession this morning was the Ten Commandments. And we do, we feel the guilt and the weight of our sin when we read those things and we just think, this just sounds like a lot of work. I want to talk about that with the time that I have left. How should we receive these commandments? Should they just feel like hard work? Let's get going. Let's do it ourselves. Let's pull up our bootstraps. Well, you might have read this online. Air traffic controller Robert Morgan helped Darren Harrison, who had no experience flying ever in his life, land a small plane after the pilot became incapacitated. Did you hear this? Did you see this online? It was like in May. You read that? 
The headline said, a passenger with no flying experience landed a plane at a Florida airport after the pilot became incapacitated. Boy, it's always Florida, isn't it? What is that? It's always in Florida. The passenger radioed into the tower and said, <laughs> this is the words from the, from the air traffic controller. He heard him saying, I don't know how to fly. I don't know how to stop this thing if I do get on the runway. Can you imagine that? Being this, this, uh, this passenger who thought you were just going on a little uh, flight with your buddy, and he becomes incapacitated, and all of a sudden you're, you're behind the stick or whatever it is. I don't even know what it looks like. You're behind the stick with all these buttons around, and you're like, I'm going to die. This is it. Can you imagine that? Well, Morgan, the, the traffic controller, was familiar with this plane, and he was able to, first of all, just locate where in the world this, this plane was and help Harrison be guided to an airport nearby. And he was, <laughs> he was actually radioing some of the other larger airlines. You see that little plane over there? Yeah, that's being piloted by a passenger right now, and the airline, major airline pilots are like freaking out, like, what's going on? But this, this air traffic controller taught, while in the air, taught this guy Harrison how to land this plane, this guy who had never touched the, the controls of an airplane before in his life. That's amazing. <laughs> but this illustration is meant to provide a way to think about how to receive these commands of Scripture when you're under threat, when you're in a hostile world. We are these passengers flying around in the sky, no experience, having no idea how to navigate a hostile world, how to figure this out, how to get the church back in the right place, how to make sure we get the right political candidates in our country, how to regain morality, all these different things. What in the world are we going to do? I just want to say, it's, we dare not come up with a clever idea in this moment. Only one solution is going to lead to life. And we have a righteous helper on the other end of the line, feeding us every instruction to us through his scriptures. Jesus says, don't worry. I've been there before. I know what to do. I understand what all the buttons do. <laughs> and I know exactly which ones to press when you're under threat, when you're facing suffering, when you feel like being hostile back. Don't pull the hostility lever. Don't pull that one. I will lead you to safety. I need you to gently, gently now, seek peace and pursue it. Do what I tell you and I'll get you right to where I am. All this is to say, obeying God is not for duty's sake. It's not just because God told you to do it. Obeying God isn't self-help. It's not the key to unlocking a happy, fruitful comfortable, carefree life. And obeying God is never meritorious and it's never a way to earn your salvation or get what you want. Obeying God is full of grace. I know I haven't said it yet, but gospel living doesn't always mean getting it right because that's what Jesus' grace is for. But it is. It is a demonstration of the beautiful life that God designed for us to live. It is living as Jesus lived for us. And as we live more like Christ, I hope obeying God actually calls our hearts to rest as we look up at him. Because God isn't asking me to win the argument. He's not asking me to make sure that the country turns back around again. That's not his desire. That's not his need. I don't have to come up with a plan for myself. 
I don't need to be the one to figure out how to live in a hostile world. The answers to life aren't found in my innovation, in my cleverness. Gospel living isn't about subtlety and earning the favor of those around me. It's about following after Jesus and chasing after his righteousness. Follow Jesus in righteousness no matter what you face, and he will get you home safely. Let's pray.